Well, I have an announcement. Does that make it the favorite part then still? Uh, my announcement is that Jesus rose from the dead. Like this happened a long time ago and it continues to transform and renew people uh, today. And it sends them out into our city so that we all as renewed people can renew the city. And that's an announcement. Like that happened. And its impact is why we're here. I mean, we're gathered here because we want to know this even more. Philippians 3, Paul says, like, that I may know Jesus and know the fellowship of his resurrection, that I would understand what it is to die with him so that I could be raised with him as well. And so, and that's why we're here. And what's amazing is that the Bible is full, not just of this glorious announcement of what God did in Jesus, but it begins to help us to work out the implications of what it means to follow Jesus in the nitty gritty of our day. Um, we're in a series that's called Enjoy. We have a graphic that's coming up. Sex, money, power, and the goodness of God. These are important aspects of life. Sex, money, power. Um, and, and the problem is that people react to these topics. People act out on these topics in, in really two wrong ways. Um, some people worship them. They worship sex. They worship money. They worship power. And other people reject them outright. Just have, I have nothing to do with that, or that's wrong, that's bad, that's dirty. Um, but Jesus is different. Jesus and the good news of the Bible um, teach us to find a third way. They teach us to find a third way uh, that keeps us from either worshiping or rejecting these things as it combines them with God's goodness. And so today we're going to talk about money. Uh, we're going to talk about money. And generally speaking, this is what most people think uh, when they consider money, they think, most people think wealth is good, poverty is bad. Pretty straightforward. Then, stop, go back. Um, then there are these Christians in the world, right? And, and these Christians, they've gotten a hold of the Bible and they've begun to read it and they go, wait, wait, hold on a second. Hold on, hold on, wait, wait. No, no, that's, that's wrong. That's wrong. Next slide. Uh, what some Christians believe is, no, no, no it's, it's different, that poverty actually is good and wealth is bad. And, and they see verses that are in the Bible. And some of them are actually in your bulletin. You can look inside your bulletin. There's some verses there. There's a place to take notes. Um, we're going to look at some of these verses. We'll put the next one up on the screen here. First um, Timothy 6.10, it says, and some of you may have heard this, even if you've never been in a church before, you maybe didn't even know it came from the Bible, but it says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith. And so we see here that what well, wealth actually distracts you from God. Loving money produces evil, so it must be bad. Okay, and then we have a verse, James 2, verse 5, it says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And so here you go. If you're poor, well, then you can be rich in faith and you can inherit God's kingdom. So therefore, poverty is good because poverty actually drives you to God. And so some Christians say, well, there we go. We have the Bible's teaching on money and Whoever those most people are, they've got it wrong. They just don't understand Jesus. They don't understand this sort of mysterious thing that seems kind of foolish. Um, they're just wrong. Now, here's the problem. 
the Bible also teaches what most people think. Okay, let's look at a couple of verses here. Um, again, these are in your bulletin, but Proverbs 10.22, uh, coming up on the next slide, says, The blessing of the Lord makes one rich. So someone's rich, it's the blessing of the Lord. And he adds no sorrow with it. And then Proverbs 6, 9 through 11, again, it says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? Now, sluggard is a lazy person. Right? He's just laying there, not getting up, not working. Um, when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And here's what's going to happen. Poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So if you're lazy, you're going to get mugged by poverty. That's what the Bible says. And so now, what do we have? Well, the Bible's teaching is both. It's both. Wealth is both a blessing and a curse. In the Bible, sometimes wealth is good, sometimes wealth is bad. And the same thing is true with poverty. Sometimes in the Bible, it's seen as a blessing, and sometimes poverty is seen as a curse. So, are you confused? You frustrated, maybe? Um, This is why people say, see, look, I told you the Bible contradicts itself. Why should I pay any attention to a book that can't even get itself right? You know, you'd think if they were making all this stuff up and put all this stuff together, that at least they would have, like, had an editor come through and be like, wait, wait, we can't say this here because you said this other thing over here. I mean, how are we supposed to think about money? This is a big deal. Because how you think about money, where money lines up for you in these categories, if wealth is good then you can make a lot of decisions about what to do with your money. Um, If wealth is evil, then there's a whole other set of decisions that you need to make about money. And so this affects our work. This affects our career. This affects our spending. Um, This affects the way we feel, doesn't it? Because we can feel guilt over having more than we should. We can feel guilt because we have this sense that, well, if wealth is bad, then gosh, I really shouldn't spend $4.82 at Subterranean buying their Reese's peanut butter mocha. Um, I think we have another slide. Yeah, so so this just repeats. So in the Bible, some places say wealth is good, poverty is bad. In the Bible, other places say poverty is good and wealth is bad. And so some churches teach what the Bible says in some places. Okay, and I've given you a couple verses there. Wealth is good, poverty is bad. Well, the Bible teaches that in Proverbs 10 and Proverbs 6. We've just seen those things. Um, These churches tend to teach that, you know what, if you're faithful to God, you will become wealthy. If you're really following Jesus, then you're on a trajectory. It may take you a while, may take some of us longer than others, but we're in this sort of upward financial trajectory in our lives. There are churches that teach that. And if you're poor, these churches teach, you know what, something's wrong. Um, maybe you just don't have enough faith. Maybe you don't really have a genuine faith. And so we need to get you saved all over again. We need to get you sanctified. We need to get you some kind of blood. I don't, you know, like churches talk about having to do more and more and more to get to a place where you can finally get on this trajectory that everyone else is on, by the way. You're, you're the only one who's not on that. And so... Um, This is what some churches do. Now, there are other churches that teach what the Bible says in other places. 
right? Some churches teach that actually, no, no, poverty is good and wealth is bad. And these churches teach that wealth leads to materialism, which is idolatry and evil. Christians should live frugal lives and give away most of our money. Don't buy nice things, just get by. Because extravagance is materialism and it's sinful. Some of these churches, will you'll hear them say, you know what, it's all going to burn anyways. And so why would you invest? Why would you waste your money on stuff that's going to burn? And the question for us is, who is right? How are we supposed to think about this? Well, the answer to that question is, they're both right and they're both wrong. <laughs> you know, these churches that affirm half of what the Bible teaches are correct in some ways, but they're also wrong. Um, we want to be a church that believes and teaches everything that the Bible says. This is not the Bible contradicting itself. This is the Bible designed to give you wisdom. Okay, This is the Bible that's designed not just to teach you what to think about money, but it wants to teach you how to think about money. Um, this is the Bible that recognizes that there are times in life when the right thing to do or the right thing to think is dependent on the situation. And so God wants to make you wise about money. He wants to make you wise enough so you'll know how to honor God with money, no matter how much of it you have or don't have. And so I think there, again, there are two ways to miss God when it comes to money. You know, we could ask ourselves a question that Chad asked at the beginning of our series. Um, is money beautiful or is it broken? Right? Should we embrace money or should we reject it? Does money make us happy or does money cause us to forget God? These are the questions that our sermon series is trying to answer. We're wrestling with the fact that we're in this world and it's incredibly, man, it's incredibly attractive. And is that attraction something that's appealing to the good parts of us or is it tempting us to do what is evil? Um, and so these are the questions that we're trying to answer. And the answer to these either-or questions about broken or beautiful, embrace or reject, make us happy or tempt us to forget God, the answer to these questions is yes. Yes, money does all of these things. And Jesus tells a story that we've been looking at um, during this series. He tells a story that helps us to understand the two wrong ways to, to, that we miss God. Um, and we're looking at this story and applying it to the issues of of our lives, and we're going to talk about it today. And so Jesus in this story, um, he tells a story of a man who had two sons, and the younger son is tired of his father. Um, he says to his father, give me my inheritance now because I want to go and enjoy life. And in Luke 15, verse 13 to 16, it's in your bulletin there as well, says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a trip um, into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, this is the story of the prodigal son. Um, and so after he squanders his property in reckless living, he returns home in hopes that his father will receive him back. And when he comes back, the father is overjoyed. And the father throws a party that celebrates because his son isn't just back, but his son is humble. His son is apologetic. His son has changed his heart. 
um, in his return. And so this is great. The problem is that this was a man with two sons. And the older son is just pissed. The older son is livid. He can't believe what his father has done in throwing a party and welcoming his son back with open arms. He wants his father to make his brother pay for what he did. And so he was offended. He won't join the party. And so the dad goes out to the older brother to bring him into the party. And it's here in Luke 15, verses 28 to 30. The father goes out to appeal to him, but he, the, the older son, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, look, these many years I have served you and have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. The older son is like, forget it. Like, you are evil. Do you realize what you're doing? This is absolutely ridiculous. How could you possibly treat him as though nothing has happened? How could you possibly celebrate his return? It's like, Dad, you are evil. You don't love me. You love him. And the dad is struck. The dad is struck. I mean, what can he say? He looks at his older brother, maybe, and he says, look, I love you, too. All that I have is yours. But I also love him. And he's back, and he's ready to start over. The dad says, look, I love you both, and I'm sorry if you want me to love you more than I love him. But I can't. I can imagine the father saying, look, I love your faithfulness and his return from sinful recklessness. You're both different. And I love you both. And when we think about this story in light of money, in light of money, both of the sons in this story reject their father's view of money. The younger brother clearly wants his money and his freedom more than he wants his father at the beginning of the story. And then the older brother, though, he wants his money so bad that he rejects his father's forgiving heart. Uh, Mike pointed this out, that this party that the father's throwing is now being funded by proceeds that actually now belong to the older son. Right? This is now his inheritance that the father is now squandering on the younger son. And so the older son is rejecting his father's forgiving heart. And so, um, so for the younger son, money is freedom. You know, for him, the tension is, I can't enjoy money and stay with God. Okay? Um, and for the older son, money is evil. My brother is evil, and he needs to suffer for what he's done. And I can't actually enjoy money because I've stayed with God. I've been serving my father, so I don't get to enjoy my inheritance. And I want to say again, both sons are wrong in their view of money. And so I want to dive a little bit deeper into this with the chart that we brought up last week. Um, and you can fill this in with your bulletin. Um, Andy Crouch 
talks about the best use of power and authority in life, it comes when that power is accompanied by risk or vulnerability. And so this chart sort of maps out. You can fill it in uh, with risk and power. This maps out what happens um, when you have high levels of power and risk or low levels of power and risk. Um, You need to have both high power and high risk to get to Jesus. And I want to apply this to these two sons' view of money. And so first, let's talk about the younger son. The younger son believed that money is happiness. And in the beginning of the story, the younger son has all the money with like zero risk. You know, he has just got paid. It's Friday night and he is hunting. Sorry, that's way too old for for a lot of you. Um, (laughs) The... uh, I mean, so for him, money is happiness, and he is living for money and the pleasure that it brings. And he's literally got a bankroll for his celebrations. He's got people around him. There is no risk, right? No one's going to tell him no. Everyone's his best friend now because he is funding the celebration, right? And so he's got high power and very low risk. Now, the older son, on the other hand, says, well, that money is evil, okay? And the older son is hypercritical and self-righteous about anyone else, especially his brother, who is a waster of money. And so, um, so, that's, so, so the younger brother has, again, like low, he's got low risk because he's at home with his father, right? He's on, the, he's on the farm, he's on the property, he's got everything that he needs, um, but he also has low power because for him, money is this evil thing out there. Money is this thing that can be abused. And the conversation that he has with his dad where he's like, look, I've slaved for you all these years and I never got a party. The dad's response is like, everything I have is yours. And I think the implication there is the father's like, man, you could have done this whenever you wanted What do you mean? Like everything that we have is now yours. You know this. I know this. And yet for some reason, the older son was unwilling to enjoy what he had. And so instead, he sort of kept himself sort of locked in and hidden in a place of real, in some ways, safety. He didn't do anything with all that he had. Instead, he just wanted to take pot shots. He wanted to be critical. He wanted to be self-righteous and keep comparing himself to his younger brother. Um, that he was so much better than. And so the problem with these two approaches, um, money is happiness and money is evil, is that they're both wrong and they actually both lead to a particular place. Um, The trap for the younger son is that if money is happiness, you will never, ever have enough. You'll never have enough money. Um, and, And I mean, Famous people have even said this. You want to know how much money it is, you know, how much money is enough? You ask them that, they will always say just a little bit more. I want to be a millionaire someday. Well, by the time you get close to being a millionaire, you actually are looking beyond that million to five, right? You get to five. I mean, literally anybody that you talk to um, who lives for money, who believes that money is part of their happiness, it's never, ever enough. And this produces a very deep poverty. Uh, this produces a very deep poverty. Um, clearly, the younger son experienced literal poverty 
um, when his money ran out. He ended up feeding pigs, which were these unclean animals, and he couldn't even eat the food they were giving the pigs. That's how poor and, uh, and how, uh, just how poor he was. But, but that younger son was impoverished long before the money ran out. So long before the money was gone, and that son had a heart that was deeply impoverished. Um, because that's what happens. Now, this idea that money is happiness, you know, if you've been around the church at all, you know that that's not right. Um, but come on, like, I know money isn't everything, but gosh, it sure helps, doesn't it? I mean, really, truly, like, it makes us a little bit happy, doesn't it? Like, we have choices, we can do stuff, we can buy stuff we don't need, right? There's happiness that comes along with all of that stuff. Um, I want to share with you a quote from Jim Carrey, right? The famous comedic actor. Um, get his picture up here. With long hair. I'm like, dang, Jim, looking good. Read this quote. This is a guy who makes, at one time, he was making $20 million every movie that he made to act like a crazy man. $20 million because, you know, they made billions. So look, this is what he says. I hope everyone could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of. You're like, oh yeah, just like a rich person to say that, right? Yeah, wouldn't it be nice, Jim? Thanks a lot. But then read the rest of the quote. So that they will know that it's not the answer. It's one thing when the pastor says, money isn't everything, money isn't happiness. You're like, well, you're asking me for money and we pay your salary. So like you have this vested interest in getting money from, uh, I get it, I understand it. And I hope that saying that lets you know that I know so that I'm like, you know, I'm not trying to do that. But this is Jim Carrey, an incredibly wealthy man. Let him speak to you wisdom from on high. Like this is wisdom that comes from him being made, in, I don't know what his faith commitment is, um, but he's saying, like, I wish everyone could have everything that I have so that they will know that it cannot make you happy. When he says it, it means something, right? Because when I say it, you're like, yeah, Stephen, you have no idea, right? If you were rich, you wouldn't feel this way. Well, he is rich, and he feels this way. And so, yeah, this is, he's not the only one. Right? There is a poverty that comes when you live for money, when you think that money is happiness. This is what the younger son did, and this is what the younger son learned. Right? How do you run out of your entire inheritance? I mean, the father's relatively wealthy from all that we can see. How do you do that? Well, usually it's because you're like, I have to keep this thing going. You know, I've got to keep this going because I can't stop. Right? Like, I want to keep feeling this way. I want to keep having these people. I want to keep having this kind of activity. Right? I want to keep doing this stuff because you kind of start to realize, like, when this ends, what am I going to do? Another author, um, David Wallace Foster, he speaks to the younger brothers. Um, and he says this. This is really powerful. If you worship money and things, and this is a guy who's not a Christian, um, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough is the truth. Again, this is a guy who's a famous author. 
Now, so that's the, that's the pathway of the younger brother into poverty. Okay, both literal, but then also just emotional and spiritual bankruptcy for him. The older son was on a different path, but it's actually, it leads to the same place. And so I want to take this quote from David Wallace and apply it now to the older son um, and look at it from his perspective. If you feel good about yourself when you can tear down all those bad people out there, right? Because that's what the older son is doing. He's taking shots at the younger brother. He thinks he's better. He thinks the older brother's evil, that money is evil, right? If you feel good about yourself when you can tear down other people, those bad folks out there, you will be consumed by a critical and a judgmental spirit. If this is what truly feeds your soul, then you'll have to keep doing it to stay meaningful. And you'll find uh, this critical spirit will consume you with bitterness and self-righteousness. And it will never end. It'll never be enough. There are things in my life that I'm critical of. Um, there are things in my life that, and I, when I examine my heart, um, I am not critical of it just because it dishonors God. I'm critical of it because there's a part of me that's like patting myself on the back for knowing better, um, for being able to see how evil other people are, for being able to dissect the evil culture that we live in and how it prompts us and pushes us into evil things. Um, And when I feed that critical, bitter, self-righteous spirit... It consumes me from the inside. It is very tempting for us to feel like we're better than other people. Um, And when you need to feel that way, and I'm not saying that you consciously think about it like that. You don't consciously say, I need to feel better about myself than other people. I need to think about myself as better in order for me to feel like I have an identity. I don't think most people think it like that. It's not that clear. But look, Look into the criticalness of your heart and ask yourself, like, is that what's going on? Do I, find, uh, do I find my identity in being better than other people, knowing more, being smarter, not being guilty of the things that I see in them? Um, the older brother's self-righteous spirit has led him on the same path. Next slide. So the younger son, money is happiness, goes down to never enough. The older son, that money is evil, leads him to a spirit that is bitter and critical. And this is another form of poverty. This is another form of poverty because this kind of bitterness, this kind of critical spirit, it really does pour acid on everything, doesn't it? Like this begins to worm its way into your general disposition. Um, This can happen to me at home. This can happen to me with my family where I just get too critical and I'm just bitter or I'm complaining about things or I just nothing's good enough. Um, and it begins to take over like more and more of my heart. It like gets this sort of beachhead, like it lands in your heart. And if you don't deal with it, it just sort of grows and grows and takes over more areas of your heart and your attitude toward more things. And this idea of poverty, it's not just lack of money, but it's, it's an inability to meaningfully act to shape your life or the people around you. Um, What happens to both the younger son and the older son um, is that they end up trapped. They end up enslaved um, to empty living and to critical self-righteousness. 
And the worst part about this is that so you, you lose all the power that you have um, and your risk goes way up. You end up vulnerable to the opinions of others. You end up vulnerable to um, just to the whims of others because you have no power to change your surroundings. So what's the answer? Right? Where do we go from here? Um, what does it look like, especially when it comes to money, for us to get out of this kind, these two kinds of poverty? Um, I think the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the one who leads us out of this kind of poverty. Jesus, um, in his life, um, in his ministry, Jesus was willing to take on the, the high risk, and he did it from a place of great power. Jesus had all power and authority, and he took on himself all of the risk and made himself vulnerable to the point of dying on a cross. Jesus came and didn't shield himself. He didn't protect himself from us. Jesus came to save the world, and he didn't do that by kind of descending and stopping in the clouds and just shouting, hey, y'all, get your act together. Jesus came down to earth, and he took on our sin. I mean, the first thing that Jesus did in the Gospel of Mark was he got baptized. Um, and that's significant because John the Baptist was baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins. And so if you were there and you knew who Jesus was, you would say what John the Baptist said when Jesus showed up to be baptized. John said, what are you doing here? I'm baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins. Doesn't apply to you, Jesus. What are you doing? And Jesus, in other words, said, John, I'm here to identify with the sins of my people. I'm here to be counted among the sinners because I'm going to take their sins. And so Jesus takes all of the risk and makes himself vulnerable to the judgment and the condemnation of God, the judgment and the condemnation that we deserved. And so the ultimate power, right, God on earth, the ultimate power took on the ultimate suffering to save us from both of these paths that lead into poverty. The path that lives for money and the path that is critical of everyone else who seems like they might be living for money. I mean, this is the gospel, right? That Jesus, who was incredibly wealthy, who had everything, yet for your sake, he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. And so Jesus rescues us from our impoverished state. Um, and he does this so that he can renew us from the inside, so that he can make us like him, even in how we use our money, how we think about money and how we act with our money. So what does this look like for us? Right? What does it look like? If money isn't happiness, but money also isn't evil, if these are two wrong ways to think about money, how should we think about money? Um, I want to give you some verses to help you build a third way in terms of thinking about money. So next slide. This is 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. It says, as for the rich in this present age. Okay, so hey, if you have money, this applies to you. Um, 
charge them not to be haughty. That means arrogant or conceited. Um, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This is a huge verse because it says kind of everything that the Bible says about money. Like in one place, you've got it all. Okay, this verse says, don't be arrogant if you have money. Right? But... It says, don't set your hope on the uncertain money because money comes, money goes, right? If you put all your eggs in that basket and you lose your money, then what do you have left? You have nothing. Um, and it says, you need, to, you need to put your hope in God. But then look what it says about God in this verse. It says, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Okay, and so this isn't saying that money is evil, Actually, this is saying that God provides for us richly. God provides with us, or provides for us. He provides for us in abundance at times. And I know that we're at different places on the socioeconomic spectrum. But comparatively speaking, when we look at the entire world, we're all rich in some respects. Um, And so what this is saying is that it's saying when you have money, Honor God with it. Um, Enjoy your money as a gift of God's abundance in your life. Okay? Money isn't happiness. Money is a gift from God. And so enjoy both the gift and the giver. Enjoy both the gift and the giver. Um, And don't set your hope on it. Um, next verse, Proverbs ten twenty two. This we saw this earlier. Again, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and He adds no sorrow with it. And so, this is the Bible teaching us that God makes people rich. And so, if you have it, honor God with it. Enjoy the fact that the abundance that you have is an expression of the abundance of God's grace given to you in Jesus. Okay, then there's another kind of verse that's in the Bible. And Hebrews 10.34 is an example of this. Look at what it says to these people. It says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I love this verse. This verse like moves me and it shakes me and it like, uh, it does something to my heart. Right, this image, think about this. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Okay, so for these people... Roman authorities are bursting through their house. They're, they're, broke, they're breaking into their house and they're plundering their property. They're taking whatever they can find. Taking money, taking stuff, taking belongings, taking heirlooms, taking, they're, they're breaking in and they're, they're plundering their property. And these folks are joyfully accepting it. This is one of these verses that goes like, wait, no, no, it can't really be meaning that. There's got to be some Greek word that really means something different, right? Like, no, no, it can't be that. It can't be that this army was breaking into homes, stealing stuff, taking it in an unfair way. They're, they're stealing, right? And all the while, the people in that home are joyfully accepting it. What the heck? Right? How is that possible? Well, the rest of the verse says, 
since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they are watching this stuff go. Presumably they know that they can't do anything about it, right? So they're stuck. Either they can fight and moan and kick and scream and they would get hurt. Um, Or they can say instead what they did was they said, you know what? We don't have control here. You know what? This is actually not our final home. You know what? We have an inheritance that is coming that will never, ever, ever run out. And so, how does this verse speak to us? Well, when you don't have money, honor God without it. So when you have money, honor God with it and enjoy it as a gift from his abundantly gracious hand. When you don't have money, honor God without it by joyfully accepting your poverty. Um, Remember that you are right now rich in Christ and no one can take that away from you. No one can touch the inheritance that Jesus has. It is an inheritance that will literally, truly blow your mind. You can try to think about how amazingly abundant God is going to be to you in the new heavens and earth. And the Bible says you can't even get close to imagining. Your best thoughts, and you're still going to be breathless when you inherit the fullness of what Jesus has in store for you. So if you have money, rejoice and honor God with it as a gift from his hand. If you don't have money, rejoice and honor God with the money you don't have, without the money, right? Because you have riches in Christ. And I think these come together in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So Paul is saying, like, I'm just so thankful the church in Philippi sent him this financial gift to support him because he he hit a a real tough spot. So he's like, I rejoice when I got your gift. Um, You were concerned, but there wasn't an opportunity. I didn't have a need, but then the need came and you gave me this gift, and I rejoice when I got it from you. Then look what he says in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. So, you know those people where you do something nice for them and and they're like, yeah, I didn't really need you to do that. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. Like, I rejoice in the gift that you gave me, but actually I didn't really need it. He goes on, he says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what's the secret? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so Paul has brought these things together. And Paul is literally willing to say to God, God, whatever you do for me, I'm going to honor you. When I am in abundance, I know how to rejoice. When I am in need, I know how to to rejoice. Paul says, God's abundance reminds me of how gracious he is to me, how extravagant he is to me in Jesus. Um, And when I have nothing, I remember that even though in this life I have nothing, I have everything in the life to come. 
And that gives me a joy that bleeds into today. And when we can grab this, this contentment, when we can see money in this way, um, we become what the Bible describes. We join a group of people that the Bible says, like there's a label on this group of people, and the label on this group of people who are content, who don't think money is evil, but they also don't need it to be happy, right? The label on that group of people is that these are people of whom the world is not worthy. That's Hebrews 11.38. These are incredibly powerful people in the world. Uh, These are people who have a faith that weathers all kinds of circumstances. These are people that you see them when they are in, when they have a lot, and you're like, dang, like they have this relationship with God and they see everything is coming from God's hand and they're experiencing his extravagance and you kind of look at them and you go, man, I wish I had that relationship with God because for them, all the stuff, all the money, all, the, all, every, the, all these blessings, they have this peace with this God who's given them all these things, right? That's powerful. Um, they are richly enjoying God's gifts. And then these same people when they run out of money, when circumstances change, when they lose their job, when their social security check gets cut, right? When they lose their home, when they find that they have bills that they can't afford to pay, like even there, you'd think like you want to show back up at their house and go, yeah, yeah how, do you, you know, how do you like it now, right? And you find them and what are they like? They're rejoicing that they don't have to live for money. They're rejoicing that they don't have to live for the stuff that they have. And you're like, wait a second, hold on a minute. Wait, 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 how how, how is this possible? And they're like, well, I'm still in relationship with my heavenly father. And he has promised to give me everything in the life to come. And that inheritance of everything has already begun to be given to me in Jesus today. And I have hope. Um, I have hope and power in him. These are people of whom the world is not worthy. These are people that if you live this way, the world's not going to understand you. Some people will think you're crazy. Some people think you're a fanatic. Um, And that's okay. That's okay. In 60 seconds, I want to get immensely practical when it comes to money. If you've been around our church before, you will have seen what I'm about to show you. Um, we're going to walk through. The Bible says there's four ways that we can use our money that will honor God. So if you want to put this into practice starting today, this is how you do it. So if you want to put God first, if you want to honor God with your money, if you want to be one of these people of whom the world is not worthy, number one, tithe 10% of your income to the church. Okay? Start. Let your first check be written to God. This is what God asks for. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, um, God says, Look, give me 10%, trust me, and put me first in your money. Second, God says, use your money to provide for your needs and your family's needs. Okay, every time you go to the grocery store, every time you provide for your needs or the needs of your family, God is honored with that. Third, um, care for the needs of others. So if you have other people in your life who are morally close to you, 
you know, meaning like not just family, but like friends. You're not obligated to meet every need that exists in every part of the world or even every part of our city. What you want to do is you want to see if sort of the umbrella of your financial covering, is it possible that, you know, as you hold that umbrella, maybe the umbrella is a little bit bigger than you need uh, for just your needs. Like maybe you can kind of extend the reach of that umbrella to cover somebody else that you know and love, right? Someone else who needs, you're caring for other people. Um, And then fourth, celebrate God's abundance by buying stuff you don't need. Okay, this is significant. Like this is part of what the Bible says. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. God has filled this world with an amazing abundance and he wants a portion of our money to be used to just celebrate how good he is to us. And so... Um, Next slide, all four of these ways of spending money honor and glorify God. All four of these ways help us to get out of either thinking money's going to make us completely happy because we're giving portions of our money to God. We're giving portions of our money to care for others, right? They also keep us from thinking that money is evil, okay? Because we're celebrating God's goodness with our money, right? We're providing for ourselves, Uh, with our money. So it's not evil. And so these four ways are ways that we can get out of any of those other three boxes and into the box that follows Jesus. And I just want to ask you, and will you follow Jesus in these four ways? Um, Those of you who have seen this before, um, even thinking about tithing, I know that tithing is sometimes something you have to work toward, Right? Some of you can't give 10% right now, but what can you give? What percentage are you giving? Maybe you're giving 1% of your income right now. Maybe it's a half a percent. And the question is, are you still giving the same percent now than you were giving the last time we talked about giving? Because if you're in the same place, then you need to move. (laughs) You need to move forward and toward what God is asking you for. Um but not just money. Like, think about this. Embrace these ways. I've got these four words written on my credit cards because it just reminds me every time I spend money, I'm doing one of these things. I am following Jesus out of poverty and into a life of real vulnerability, real risk, and real power. So I want to invite you to follow Jesus um, and see what he does in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Um, Thank you for showing us how to think about money. Thank you that money uh, cannot provide happiness because you do. But thank you that money is not evil so that we can enjoy the world that you have made and the things that people have made in your image. Jesus, help us to grow in this. Help us to find you in the midst of this and help us to orient our financial life around your priorities so that we can find life and hope, so that we can find the comfort of knowing that we're following you. And for those who are here who don't know you, I pray that they would see your abundant goodness and this third way of thinking about money and that that would draw them to trust you and to follow you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So we have a time now where we're